Hey folks, Jeff Salzman here and welcome to the Daily Evolver Live. It's Tuesday, April 14th, and this is episode 3 of the spring 2015 season. I'm here in Boulder, as always, with our multi-talented Daily Evolver producer, Brett Walker. How's it going, Brett? Hey, it's going good. Yeah. So great music, right? Leading up to us? Yeah. Some kind of French pop rap? Exactly. Actually, I I think he might be Belgian. Really? Uh, His name is Stromae. Yeah. Or, or Stromai, one of those two things. He's really big in Europe. Yeah. And just kind of started getting a following here in the U.S. But he's great, huh? Well, as always, we are at the leading edge. <laughs> yes, so we are. So thank you for joining us. Now we are live at our new home at Integral Radio. Integral Radio is a part of IntegralLife.com, of course, which is the leading internet hub for the worldwide Integral community as well as the home base for Ken Wilbur and his latest work. And it is also my home base, uh, where I started with the Daily Evolver four years ago and have uh, grown from there and now have my personal blog, thedailyevolver.com, where I post all these live podcasts as well as on Integral Life, plus conversations I have with other cool people and whatever else captures my or Brett's fancy. Uh, The key mission for my work here at the Daily Evolver is to use an integral lens, to use integral theory to help us understand current events. And I'm talking politics, culture, spirituality. And conversely, to use current events to understand integral theory. And to that end, I have created a couple charts and graphs that are on my blog that you might want to look at that will help you understand what I'm talking about uh, tonight and, you know, in general. And uh, Brett is about to put them on the chat screen, but you can also find them on the Theory tab on the homepage of dailyevolver.com. Just click Theory tab at the top uh, and you'll find them there. All right. So tonight, I wanted to do something a little different. I know we have Hillary to talk about, not to mention her uh, potential opponents from the right, Rand Paul, Mario Rubio, and Ted Cruz. Uh, As we all know, I'm sure the U.S. presidential election for 2016 has begun officially in the last couple weeks, but we will have over a year and a half to wallow in that mire So tonight, I want to do something a little different, and that is I want to address some of the best questions and comments that I've been receiving from you listeners. And these are on the email that I just mentioned in the speak pipe, also on the chat room on the Integral Radio. And Brett, you'll keep an eye on that, and if there's anything I need to see, you can, you know, flag me, right? Will do. Cool. All right, so... Let's look at some of the questions that we have been receiving over the last few weeks. They're actually quite touching to me, particularly the ones I'm going to feature tonight, because there is a theme in common, and that is, how do we live integrally? You know, we're exploring this new territory intellectually. 
Uh, we have this certain integral awakening that we can feel in our own minds and bodies. And we know, or at least believe, see, you know, that it's an emergent stage in the evolution of human consciousness. But what does it feel like? What is it actually? How do we act? How do we settle here, become stabilized, take up residency? That's at the core of these questions, and I love it. So here we go. Let's go to the first one. And this was one I actually received yesterday. It was email. The subject line was, is fundamentalism fundamental? And it's from Graham in British Columbia, Canada. And Brett, would you read Graham's email to us? Sure. Graham writes, My question, comment, is around the idea of fundamentalism. It seems this concept is spoken about mostly in connection with amber-level religion and is deemed to be a dysfunctional bump on the road of development. However, I am curious if perhaps a certain level of fundamentalism is a necessary part of development across the spectrum and primarily shows up when a new level of development is achieved. This curiosity comes from my experience of looking back on my own developmental journey, which involves some almost laughable stereotypical markers. When I first reached Orange Modern, I was heavily into Ayn Rand and would preach about the values of capitalism to anyone who would listen. I then simmered down for a while until I reached Green Postmodern when I started preaching about multicultural equality and environmental sustainability. It should also be noted that I considered anyone who disagreed with me to be ignorant and wrong. Finally, most recently, after coming into contact with Integral Theory, I found myself trying to push Ken Wilber books onto all my friends. Luckily, I've simmered down again and count myself fortunate that through all of this, I haven't annoyed all of my friends away. <laughs> so this brings me back to my original question. In a sense, was I experiencing a phase of fundamentalism at the start of each of these stages? I'm pretty sure I'm not alone in this, but is this something that everyone experiences or not necessarily? Any thoughts you might have would be great. Yeah, that's, I think, such a terrific question and observation embedded in that question. And yes, every stage has a fundamentalist aspect, and every stage has a trajectory of how we enter it and mature in it, and eventually, you know, tire of it and move on. And the, the pattern, I, for simplicity, I divide it into three pieces, and that is, first, you love it. Second, you live it. And third, you leave it. And this is true of entering every stage of development. If we look at that levels or altitudes of development chart, as we move into red, as we move into blue, as we move into orange, as we move, or amber, I'm sorry, not blue, amber, uh, orange, green, and on into integral. Um, when we first enter into these new structures of consciousness, it is like we have entered a new world. And we really actually have. I love what the fundamentalist Christians talk about. And this is, of course, moving from red into amber, is they describe the experience of being saved by Christ as being born again. You know, they're literally born as a new person. 
They're born in their bodies, in their mind, in their spirit. And there's a truth to that. As we move into a new stage of development, there's a reorganization of our subtle bodies, to be sure. I mean, our chakra system is lit up at new levels. There's a new sort of software that's been installed. We are able to see more. We're able to, I, I love as Walt Whitman said, we inhale great drafts of space. And our world is bigger. And we feel fresh and alive. And, you know, it's a new world space. And the cool thing is, is that the actual move can happen in a moment. Uh, it's like in the traditional or amber stage of development, we can have this happen as a response to an altar call at a Billy Graham rally, you know, where we really, that moment where we say, yes, Christ, I am yours. And that is a very, very significant movement for people at that stage of development, but it recapitulates at the next stage. And uh, Graham talked about this, is, <laughs> you know, he said, what do you say, laughably uh, stereotypical? But it, it's true. I mean, many of us, and I'm one of them, moved from that amber stage of development into the next stage, the orange or modern stage of development, by reading Ayn Rand. And interestingly enough, and we'll get to this in subsequent shows, Ayn Rand is the patron saint of the Tea Party, which is the party that has spawned the three so far announced Republican candidates for president, Rand Paul, Mario Rubio, and Ted Cruz. So very, very influential uh, among the intelligentsia at Orange. And I don't want to get into a big Ayn Rand thing, but she still keeps a certain mythic story going. There's still a great cosmic battle for Ayn Rand. But in her case, it's not between this transcendent good God and transcendent evil devil. It's between the heroic creator-producer human beings, the great people. Uh, in a way, they play the God role. And then on the other side is this <laughs> slithering, sniveling, you know, mass of people who want to leech off of them. <laughs> I always love one of her main characters, uh, the, one of the villains in The Fountainhead, I believe. And I, I remember his name is Ellsworth Tui. The last name is T-O-O-H-E-Y, which is just short of Patui, which according to the Urban Dictionary is a, a non what do they call it? A non-poetic version a non I can't pronounce it at this moment. Anyway. Yeah, like a, an onomatopoeia. There you go. Right? Yes. It's a word that sounds like what it is, which is spitting. So in any, in any case, I mean, the Ayn Rand thing is still very, very polarized between good and evil. But that gets us into that orange. But it's a new fundamentalism that gets us into the orange structure of consciousness, modernity. And then... As Graham talked about, he moved into environmentalism. I did the same. I moved into Boulder and, um, you know, pot smoking and drugs and the whole green thing. Uh, many of us did on, on this call. You can recognize yourself as you moved into the more liberal stage of development. 
And then we move into the integral stage. And, you know, people stop at any stage of the game and there's no real explanation for that. Everybody gets to be who they are, where they are. And that actually is one of the great insights and markers of integral consciousness is that we get that everybody gets to be who they are. And that's new, really. Uh, the green postmodernists think that they're right and everybody else is wrong. They have a disdain for uh, fundamentalists, for sure. And they think that modernists, with their capitalist development, you know, rapacious mentality are evil. There's pieces of truth to all of this. And that's one of the great insights of Integral is that we see the pieces of truth. But there is a trajectory as we move from one stage to the next. And I think actually the person who has really, uh, I think, mapped this out the best is Don Beck and the Spiral Dynamics folks. And they have this whole movement from, you know, alpha to beta through gamma, delta, uh, of the trajectory of moving from one stage of development to the next. I'll just read you from what he talks about, this new fundamentalist where you found, you know, your new Jesus, the new truth. And this is what he calls the Delta stage. And he describes it as such. He says, Delta is a period of excitement and rapid change where the barriers are overcome and previous restraints drop away. People take charge of their own destinies. The past no longer controls the present. The Delta energy surge is often enthusiastic and unrestrained. Old ways of living give way to fresh solutions and unexpectedly different structures begin to emerge in a swirl of activity. This exuberance ignites creativity, resourcefulness, and dedication to the task of designing a new age or a new person. Eureka and aha are heard everywhere as the thrill of liberation mobilizes people in search of a new utopia. The Delta stage often brings stress into relationships and may even trigger negative reactions from those left behind. Too much Delta, too soon, too emotionally displayed, can produce a serious backlash that actually reinforces the old barriers. So that's that stage of, I found Jesus, or I found rationality, or I found sensitivity. You know, that's the, the amber, the orange, and the green move. And they are so delicious and so enlivening. And so we love it. And then, you know, we do our best to live it which is always, you know, a little bit disillusioning. We have to get real, you know, or, okay, well, I'm a soldier for God now. I know nothing can hurt me and Jesus is on my side, but, you know, it still hurts and I still in doubt. And as I mentioned last week, it, you know, it's that Buddhist, first noble truth of Buddhism. And that is that life is suffering. Life is dukkha. And as Trumpa Rinpoche said, a better definition of dukkha is not suffering, but life is just unsatisfactory. It just wasn't as good as I had hoped when I was in the love it phase. But, 
you know, we soldier on. But then finally it gets to be the, you know, as I always think, the good old Peggy Lee line. Is that all there is? You know, this is it. This myth, this, you know, Bible, and I, you know, can't quite reconcile it with what I know to be true from science and and then I'm with science, and I mean, let's face it, science got us to the atomic bomb and, you know, eco-disaster and, you know, how about that? And, you know, and then finally even green. Green just gets us into this relativistic sort of depressed swamp where there's no absolute truth. And so every stage has its, is that all there is phase. And... Uh, Don Beck calls this the gamma stage. And I'll read what he, how he describes it because he's so good at this. He says, gamma is a time of growing frustration, feelings of being trapped, and an entire array of antisocial, destructive, and acting out behaviors. Gamma may lead to violence, armed rebellion, and revolt against the status quo. Now, Don's talking here about cultures which also move through these stages in societies and countries. But it's also true of individuals. So in this case, think about the armed rebellion <laughs> that you have within yourself. And of course, it's always advised that we don't take up real arms. So he goes on, he writes, this becomes the revolutionary option as people literally or symbolically throw themselves against the barriers. In milder cases, it's a time of wanting to escape, run away, break out, and be free of the bonds that entrap us. Gamma is often seen in people experiencing the panic of a midlife crisis, or when going through a major personal trauma where the future looks hopeless. Since forward movement seems blocked at Gamma, we may experiment with a regressive search. We explore old ways of thinking, dust off solutions, revive the tried and true, and try our best to believe that the old time religion was good enough for my father and it's good enough for me. So, you know, that's that stage where we do have a certain dark night. The revolutionary option, of course, is to blow your life up. But there's always an evolutionary option as well. And that's one of the things that we certainly realize by the time we get to an integral stage of development, that actually deconstructing our life, and as they say in the business schools, creative destruction, is a project that we have to always be engaged in where we want to turn towards what's not working, towards the dukkha, towards the unsatisfactoriness of our lives, the pain, and see what it is, and undefend ourselves, and metabolize it. It doesn't always have to involve the traumatic breakdowns that happen in the earlier stages of development. All right, so thank you for your question about fundamentalism. Yes, there is one at every stage of the game. I, too, shoved Ayn Rand books down my friends' throats. I shoved Ken Wilber books down my friends' throats. 
And at some point we have to just sort of drop the whole project, which actually gets me to the next question, which is from Peggy. And uh, just a quick email she wrote to me. She said, I'm wondering whether it's feasible or even possible to push development from one level to the other. What's the line between inviting and forcing? Is it possible to make anyone grow up? Is the fight futile? And it's it's such a really fundamental question. Is it possible to make anyone grow up? The answer to that is no. You can't make a six-year-old a 12-year-old. But the bigger question is, why would you even try? You know, a six-year-old gets to be a six-year-old and you have to love him and you have to nurture him and you have to feed him and you have to clothe him and you have to let his own procreant urge do the rest and let emergence do the rest and realize that the whole system is growing under its own power. This is a basically a spiritual realization that there is a force of eros that is at play, first of all, in the cosmos as a whole, but also in each and every one of us. It's in me, it's in you, it's in him, it's in her, and there's nothing we need to do except be skillful and helpful and loving. And that's not easy. It's easy to say. It's, you know, it's a whole big practice in in terms of doing that effectively. And we get all screwed up in projections and, you know, trying to, you know, alleviate our own suffering by not looking at other people's and all of that's good stuff. But this is, that's the good fight, you know, here. Uh, That's maybe, so maybe the second part is the fight futile. I'm not sure it is. I wanted to say no. I wanted to say yes, it's futile. But actually, no, we want to fight this ignorance of not really being non-aggressive. This is, again, another Chokum Trumpa uh, teaching, is that anytime you're trying to fix somebody or make them see something that they can't, you're actually committing an aggression on them. And much better to just see who they are and take a breath and love them where they are, knowing that the procreate urge or eros, God, is at work in them as well. All right. So let's go (laughs) to the next question uh, from Rob in Frankfurt, Germany. You ready, Brett? Uh, I love this question uh, for... It's a mix of guileless sincerity on one hand and a realization of the complete absurdity of the question itself. So anyway, you ready, Brett? Sure. Here, here Rob from Frankfurt. Hi, Jess. It's Rob McLeod calling from Frankfurt, Germany. I've noticed a number of my friends that I would identify as anywhere from an orange to a green to a yellow center of gravity. A lot of them are very interested in this whole like Illuminati alien, reptilian, shape-shifting conspiracy world. And there's a lot of it out there, and they've sent me a lot of the videos. And I've been a little bit baffled because as I'm watching it, I really don't understand the draw to it. But a lot of my relatively developed friends are really into this stuff. And I was just curious to know 
if you had a take on it. <laughs> well, yes. For those of you who don't know, there's a movement on the internet uh, in the virtual world that posits, indeed claims, that we are being visited by alien life forms and that they are indeed living amongst us and are in charge and pulling the strings and, you know, the whole thing, which is, of course, as Rob points out, the DNA of consp conspiracy thinking, which is that there is something going on beneath the surface of life as we see it, beyond the veil, the curtain. The curtain is drawn and there's a far bigger reality on the other side. And in this case, it's a reality where aliens are living amongst us. And, you know, and of course, as he points out, there's Illuminati, there's a whole endless array of conspiracy theories like this. But the one he's talking about uh, actually is very interesting. I, I, I've heard about it, and Rob's question made me look into it a little further. But it starts with this really well-known scientific dilemma, which was called the Fermi Paradox, which is named after Enrico Fermi, which is the you know super famous 20th century Italian nuclear physicist. And he pointed out the apparent contradiction between the high estimates of the probability of the existence of extraterrestrial civilizations. So, you know, the probability, considering how many hundreds of billions of galaxies and, and worlds there are, and then compare that with the fact that we haven't been contacted, or there's no evidence for such civilizations. You know, and even if a civilization had a thousand years head start on the Earth, I mean, where are we going to be in a thousand years in terms of technology and, you know, communication and so forth? Uh, so it is a really interesting paradox. And the answer that the <laughs> reptilian alien shapeshifter community has come up with is that not only are they in contact with us, they're actually here. And so you see these uh, YouTube videos of, you know, there's a rally, there's a famous one of this rally for Obama. And it's one of Obama's uh, Secret Service guys. And you can see him moving through the crowd and there's this video and he looks like a normal guy. But wait a second. You know, the camera catches what the eye cannot. Freeze the frame. And we zoom in. And we see that his features are less human and more reptilian. And then, you know, we click, click, click in. We're now, you know, resolution of 20. And now we can see that under the makeup, there's this mottled reptilian skin. And then we click, 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 we're at a 50 times resolution. And we can see that it's not even skin. It's these very fine scales. And, oh my God, Obama's Secret Service guy is a reptile. And I can sort of like get it and feel it. And there's, you know, the, 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 these, then there's these experts that weigh in and there's these graphs and charts and all of these facts and sightings and all over the world. And it all begins to add up. And this is 
characteristic of conspiracy uh, theories is, you know, we think that they're just these, you know, people shouting off the street corner. But no, they're actually, there's all this, they're like drenched in facts and, you know, the size of the bolts and the, the testimony of the ant and whatever. I mean, it's just astonishing the granularity of the facts in these things. So I'm as shallow as anybody. I mean, I read these things and I think, oh my God, you know, Obama was born in Kenya and George Bush did bring down the World Trade Towers. What's so interesting to me is that it just seems that there's a part of humanity that is so stifled by the modern materialistic view that really just denies that there's any kind of meaning or any kind of um, reality beyond the veil of our senses, that it's just unstable. That materialist view historically will be seen as a moment in time. You know, it's when we try to wring out all of the myth and superstition and, you know, cruelties of pre-modernity, but in the process wrung all of the enchantment out of life, and that is not stable for human beings. We have antenna for meaning and for bigger realities. And so we'll plug it in anywhere. It's like a hunger that is not unlike the hunger we have for food, and it has to be fed. And, you know, <laughs> Brett and I talk about this. There's sort of two explanations for this. I mean, clearly human beings have a God-shaped hole, as, as uh, somebody once said, and, you know, something that needs to be filled with that numinous dimension. So either that is a great mass delusion of humanity, um, or, you know, as materialists say, it's a way that matter has organized itself so we continue to interrelate with these other bags of protoplasm. Um, I don't know. I get lost there. So, you know, either it's a delusion or it's true. Or it actually is getting to something that is the nature of a larger reality. And, you know, why... Can't you know we're here? Why can't there be what are they again? Reptilian alien shapeshifters, Brett. Why can't they be here too? Yeah, why why are you marginalizing them? <laughs> I'm sorry, <laughs> okay, me too. Okay, <laughs> all right. So, next we have a question from Mari from Montreal. And I love this question, too, because it gets to what is a real marker of the move from first tier to second tier or green into integral consciousness. And let's hear from Mari. Hi, Jeff. Mari speaking. I have a big smile feeling that you are in my living room with me having a conversation because you are right. There's not much of an integral community in Montreal, especially not in the French language. I would add on that topic of the chronic disease one thing is that for me the the main thing was that we have to have a different tone on this conversation because to start speaking about 
everything that is going wrong on a system that is feeling very helpless is really, really not helping. I've realized that it's the opposite. I need to know everything that is going well, all the scientific research, all the mindfulness uh, practice, all that is working, that help, brings us more uh, solution. That's one thing I've, I've really learned through the years and that I'm using with uh, young people from uh, 20 and early 30s to address the issue. They are already aware, so aware of all what's going wrong. So I always start with, wow, we are creating a new reality. We are, but there is. And then when they are very uplifted because of that, then I can address why we don't have success on this or the other issue. Yeah, and that is really the, the difference between a first-tier consciousness, which is the first six stages of development on the integral chart, archaic through postmodern, and then the second tier, which begins with integral and goes from there. And this is part of the basic research that Claire Graves, one of the developmental psychologists with, that was at the uh, founding of uh, Spiral Dynamics, he pointed out that first-tier memes or first-tier structures are dominated by the idea of there's something wrong. He called them that they have a deficiency need, that there's something that is missing, that's something that needs to be brought in, something that needs to be fixed. There's something we've done wrong. And that's true of all six first-tier stages. Uh, and we can see it in traditionalism. Of course, traditionalism, it's textbook. I mean, we disobeyed God and we've been cast out of the garden. Modernity, we have the great rationality science has brought us to ecological disaster and also moral disaster with capitalism. And postmodernity has this sense that, you know, we have really just driven the whole, you know, we have a moral dilemma of poverty and warfare that we're unable to fix. And the whole thing is a disaster. And that is, you know, there's a, there's, there's a certain trajectory of histories. If we look at the way that early people thought of history, and I'm talking the archaic stage, the tribal stage, there was really no history. Time had a circular nature. And even people who were dead were still here. The spirits lived on. And then we move into the amber stage where history has a sense of myth, where we tell great stories about our origins in the Garden of Eden or the, you know, Remus and Romulus in Rome or whatever. The origin stories are, you know, rich and varied from the mythic stage. And then we have history from the rational or orange stage objective, where we actually want to associate dates and battles and people and events in some sort of timeline. And then we have history from a green perspective, which is basically correcting the misinterpretation of the modern stage. 
And Breen sees that the modern stage is still infected with this great triumphalist myth of the ascendancy of my particular tribe or nation. And they want to correct that with the story of the people who have been left out. So the poor, the marginalized, the racially discriminated against, uh, all of that becomes the project of the green postmodern stage of development. They are attuned to the victims. And it is an amazing, marvelous, and surprising, um, you know, emergent out of modernity that that happens. At Integral, we have a different relationship to history. We no longer see it as, um, you know, we, we see all of it. We see what the postmodernists tell us, what the modernists tell us, the objective view. We see the mythic. And we sort of feel into all of it. And we see as we feel in, or we feel, you know, as we begin to embody in a, a, a physical and subtle way, uh, the history of humanity, that there's a trajectory there. And that humanity has moved, you know, relentlessly, century to century, to more good, true, and beautiful structures of consciousness. And so that is the integral view uh, and people often say, well, you know, you have the optimistic view. And, you know, I, I, I think I actually am a dispositional optimist, so I don't mind that label. But that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about realism, is that we can just see that humanity has a trajectory towards ever-increasing and ever-increasing circle of moral consideration, that more and more people and things are inside your circle of who you need to care about. Uh, it used to be your tribe and your clan and your nation state and your nation. And at some point it becomes the world. And actually at some point it becomes the cosmos. That is a insight that has traction and potency for people who are at the exit stage of green. But it doesn't have any potency for the people who are in, you know, basically loving and living green. And, you know, there are people who don't want to hear it. In fact, Brett, you were talking to me about, uh, you would just come from some of your classes at Naropa, which is, you know, a school both Brett and I have gone to, and it's uh, fantastic. It has many integral qualities, but it is deeply saturated in green. And what were you telling me? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it can be really frustrating sometimes. You know, we both love that school. It's unlike any other place. Um, and yet, um, it's really the mean green meme like writ uh, large you know i mean it's in class today we we're in our death and dying class we were discussing this movie made about uh, death in in ladakh and that's that's a province way up at the north end of india uh, used to be western tibet mm -hmm. but you know they were interviewing these people and they were talking they had they felt very light-hearted about death 
they were stating about how, well, they're going to be reincarnated. It's no big deal, you know. And, you know, they were talking about it as if it was just, it was a fact. It, right. You know, I mean, there's no way around it. That was what was going to happen. You know, and I just noticed that reminded me of fundamentalists uh, in America, fundamentalist Christians talking about heaven. You know, and, and that kind of, you know, got us on this discussion about, you know, what is modernity? And, you know, I just realized that they they don't believe that culture is developing, that there is a, a collective cultural development that's happening that is akin to our individual development. Mm -hmm. And there are signs on the way, you know, you can sort of tell as, as a person or as a culture gets more complex, you can see that happening. There's, there's markers for that. And that's just not, you know, they, they take that because if you're in deep green, you're in kind of a dialectical antithesis to the ideas of modernism and integral sounds like modernism, you yeah. know, and so they, they have this horrible allergy to that. You know, they start throwing around words like colonialism and, you know, white male privilege and, you know, and who are you to say and this or that or that yeah. you're more advanced. And it's very frustrating because there's this giant piece of the truth that is so rich that it just, the whole thing is missing, you know, yeah, without that developmental perspective. Yeah. Yeah, and that is, from an integral perspective, we see the movement of the whole system. And, well, let's just go, actually, I think the next call will help us to illuminate this even more. And this is a, a speak pipe, right, from um, Beth? From Beth, yeah. yeah. And Beth is a Methodist minister. She's writing about some of the stuff we've been talking about with integral Christianity here. Hi, Jeff. I really enjoyed uh, listening to the Daily Evolver last week as you interviewed Steve McIntosh and talked about evolutionary spirituality. I was also able to attend the conference in Boulder, and I found that fascinating. But one of the things that I discovered at the conference is that it seems to me that integral Christianity doesn't have much to say about the it space. The social system of integrally informed Christian church nor does it say much about the lived-out relationships of the we space. We know that church members are known to give higher percentages of money to charities as well as volunteer their time and service work around the world. So I see the church in the it space functioning in society as an outward expression of its beliefs and values, and it provides a sense of stability and constancy in community. I think that the church is one of the most cost-effective NGOs in the world because it can provide volunteers, food, clothing, and shelter, and any kind of disaster because churches are the outpost. It's also able to raise millions and millions of dollars to do things like eradicate malaria in Africa. But as more and more people in the United States move into the postmodern green value system, the mainline church is rapidly declining, and it's trying to hold fast to its capacities to care for the least of these and mobilize millions of people to volunteer around the world. And then going into the we space of Christian community, the gathered community provides a way for people to learn about the faith and practice loving God, ourselves, and our neighbor. And it's a beautiful way to be exposed to otherness within the community. 
There's a palpable sense of belovedness in these communities who have baptized, married, and buried generations of family members, and where you are known and loved, warts and all. In this kind of community, you can be confronted with your barriers and your constrictions through exactly those people that drive you up the wall, and then sit next to them in worship and take communion with them. So I think it provides a highly effective training ground for doing shadow work. It's in that community where you can come to know your belovedness and practice loving others. As we move into turquoise value system and the concept of evolutionary spirituality, what does the it and we spaces of integral Christian community look like? Yeah, so I think Beth really raises an important point, and that is that you know, integral Christianity and, you know, even the bigger container of integral spirituality or evolutionary spirituality itself is, you know, not very developed in its second and third person dimensions. It's more developed in its first person dimensions. And that's not necessarily, you know, a, even a good or bad thing. It's just the nature of how new spiritual realities emerge. And that is that, well, I often think of the teaching I got when I was at my uh, uh, master's program at Naropa on Indo-Tibetan Buddhism. They talked about that the, the nature of religion is that it serves three functions. It gives us a view of what reality is. It gives us a path that shows us how to live in in consonance with that nature of reality. And then the three, it shows us through fruition what is the result of walking the path that is aligned with the view. So view, path, and fruition. And integral or evolutionary spirituality is very much engaged right now with the view. We're thinking about it. We're not doing a lot about it. And we have our conferences and we have uh, the, the integral world space, and there are people who are absolutely, you know, working on practices and uh, even service in the third person, you know, how we relate to the world. I think of integral without borders and some of the people who are using integral as a way to alleviate suffering. This is what religions do. But still, right now, the action is more in the first person or in the view itself. And that's not nothing. You know, thinking about things is, you know, I always love what Ken Wilber says. He said, thoughts are things. You know, the way we think and talk about things actually create grooves in the cosmos. They actually add to the storehouse of human wisdom and magnetize more thinking that are along these, what we would say, you know, in Buddhist terms, right, the, the paths of right thinking. So we have this evolutionary view where we could feel the movements of history, and this is really important. But what is also interesting about what Beth was talking about, of course, she being, she being a Methodist minister, she was saying that, or I'm not sure this was in the edit that we did, but mainline religions, uh, the progressive Christian denominations like Methodism and so forth, are losing people and are shrinking. And the problem 
with these denominations is they don't have a great view anymore. I mean, the 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 mythic view of Jesus and God and the Bible and you know all of that, you know, that God created the world and we disobeyed and we were cast out of the garden and we need a final sacrifice in order to bring us back into it, you know, that doesn't fly in any way, shape, or even poetically. It feels it has too much baggage, in my opinion. Now, you know, I may be off the reservation here in terms of people who are really working in terms of integral Christianity, but, you know, let's say just in terms of, you know, a thought experiment that the way forward is, okay, you guys have the second and third person. You have these mainline churches that you're right. They have millions of dollars. They have millions of adherents. They have the systems and capacities worldwide to do good. So the, 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 the third person they have, the second person they have, and the, the, there are people there, but they're lacking a story. Uh, the mythic story doesn't fly anymore. But maybe the evolutionary story does. Maybe there's a compelling story in, in seeing that we have come up from Eden. You know, we have climbed out of the swamps into a reality that includes goodness, truth, and beauty that is unimaginable from, you know, any kind of, uh, you know, origin story that, you know, other than the one we have, you know, that we literally, you know, I always love one of the great lines from, again, Ken Wilbur. He says, the, the story of evolution is actually quite short. Dirt got up and wrote poetry. You know, isn't there a spiritual message in there that may be more potent uh, in terms of the actual view that could galvanize humanity into the next stage. I mean, we're just beginning to think about this. And, you know, I don't claim to have any kind of, you know, answers for sure. But it's interesting to me that maybe we get this first person, this, you know, view hooked up with the mainline church, which is second and third and is looking for a view, and maybe we've got something. So, I don't know. Something to think about. All right. Well, thank you so much. It's been fun to indulge our, you know, fancy in thinking about these wonderful questions uh, that come from you. And again, keep them coming. Jeff at DailyEvolver.com. And go to DailyEvolver.com website and then click the orange button. You can leave me a voicemail. And I will uh, continue to listen and look forward to um, continuing to do this work of interpreting current events from an integral perspective and using current events as a way of understanding the integral view. And that's what we do at The Daily Evolver. And uh, so we will um, see you again next Tuesday night. Uh, looking forward to it. And this is Jeff Salzman signing off. Good night, everybody.